Jesus name. Amen. To First John. Uh, so hopefully you have your Bibles out. If not, go ahead and get your Bibles out. Um, your tablets, your phones, whatever you need to do uh, to follow us along in First John. Uh, what I want to do this morning is read the text, put it in front of us, uh, and then pray, and then we'll get into uh, the passage. First John chapter 2, we're going to look at 18 through 27 this morning, and it reads like this. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for uh, this time that we have to spend in your word. We thank you that your word is uh, true, that it, would, uh, that it is purpose to teach us, form us, shape us, fashion us. We pray that we would be um, open to it, focused on it, as we hear it unpacked uh, now. Use me, and I ask that you would allow me to get out of the way and that we would all be nourished as a result of our time in your word this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, as we look into the passage this morning, I realize that the, the title of the sermon, Who is the Antichrist, probably promises more than I'm going to give you. Because I'm going to answer that question, but I'm also not going to answer that question. Um, I'm going to answer that question according to what the text tells us. I'm not going to answer that question according to how many have sought to answer the question in the past. Uh, maybe you're new to Christianity. Maybe you're new to even the term Antichrist. Uh, maybe the only thing you know about the term Antichrist is what you see in Hollywood or movies or, uh, or books or things like that. Uh, throughout the history of Christianity, many have believed that there is an Antichrist, capital A, that is coming. And when this Antichrist comes on the scene, he's going to claim to be Jesus. He's going to unite the world under one world order. He's going to make everybody bow down to him. He's going to make you, uh, you know, persecute and try to stamp out Christianity. 
And it's when he's in his full reign of power that Jesus finally comes back and crushes him and the nations that were against him. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure that uh, it's going to go down exactly like that. Some Christians believe that there are, there are different kinds of antichrists that appear over time and not just necessarily one. Uh, I think it's reasonable to believe that eventually there is one person that consummately represents this, this person. Maybe it's a politician. Maybe it's not a politician. Maybe, maybe it's someone from Europe. Maybe it's American. I don't, we don't know these details. Uh, and it's interesting that the text doesn't give us details. John's concern is not that we try to figure this person out. And what I want to warn you about is every generation that tries to pinpoint who this person is in particular is wrong. For 2000 years, we keep getting the Antichrist wrong because we keep trying to pinpoint the Antichrist, the one person. Um, throughout the history of the church, even the reformers early on in the Protestant Reformation, right, in the 1500s and going forward, uh, thought that the Pope was the Antichrist, or at least that the, the papacy was, uh, the institution itself was the Antichrist. Okay, maybe. Um, but if you're thinking of the Pope as the one, every generation, this, this Pope, this is the one, it's about to all end. Guess what? Then there's a next Pope, and then there's a next Pope, and then there's a next Pope, right? Uh, if you read like the Left Behind series, you know, you're, you'll be tempted to open up the newspaper or the news blogs and try to figure out, well, who is it, right? Who is it going to be that's going to unite everybody? Uh, you know, when I was a kid, I remember adults talking about Henry Kissinger, the evil Henry Kissinger that's going to unite everybody. I'm like, Henry the who, right? Um, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. Christians talk about Gorbachev's birthmark on his head. It's the mark of the beast. Christians are crazy. And we become the laughing stock of the world when we do this kind of stuff. Um, uh, every time a despot rises to power, Christians thought Napoleon was the Antichrist. Christians thought Hitler was the Antichrist, right? In November 2012, a famous Southern pastor proclaimed that if Obama is reelected, Barack Obama will usher in the reign of the Antichrist. Well, he was reelected. You think that guy's church shriveled down to nothing? He's famous. He's in all the pictures of pastors gathering around Trump with laying hands on him because he's God's man, right? So th this stuff will, will, will prompt many Christians to have their nose more in the newspapers than in the text of the Bible, right? And that's a problem. So I'm not going to answer the question, who is the Antichrist? And I'm sorry if the, if the title was misleading. But I want to talk about what is an Antichrist. Who are the Antichrists, plural? What do they look like? What do they do? Um, and so as we um, look into doing that, we want to make sure that we are not putting uh, more effort into what the Bible says than uh, more effort into what the newspaper says than what the Bible says. Um, so we're going to look into John's text. He's concerned that Christians are uh, caught up in deceitful lies, deceitful schemes, 
he's concerned that his beloved children, as he calls them, are, uh, are in some way duped or confused about who Christ is. And this is going to happen more and more. Christians are going to be more confused. Christians are going to be more tempted to leave behind what is true and what is right about Christ. Uh, and this is going to happen more and more because we live in the last hour. If you look at that first verse, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, uh, so now many Antichrists have come. Uh, the last hour uh, is something we're in, and the way we know it is the presence of the Antichrists. The last hour, that's confusing because people will say, well, how can, uh, uh, how can he be, how can we be in the last hour for almost 2,000 years, right? If you, if you, first John is writing this over 1,900 years ago, almost 2,000 years ago, and he's telling his original readers, he's telling his original readers, we're in the last hour. And you may have heard some people sort of mock Christianity. You've been saying it's the last hour for you know, two millennia. It doesn't even mean anything anymore. It's, it's meaningless to say we're in the last hour. If decade after decade goes by, century after century goes by, and, you know, some big antichrist hasn't shown up, Jesus hasn't returned. Peter writes about this when he writes to his readers, right? In First Peter, uh, the people are mocking. People are like, where's, where's he at? He keeps saying there's a return, and, and it hasn't happened yet. Uh, when, when John says we're in the last hour, obviously, he doesn't mean the last 60 minutes. There wouldn't have been any need to write the letter if he meant 60 minutes. So nobody believes that he means by hour, he means an actual hour. So everybody, no matter what strain of Christianity you come from, everyone takes hour figuratively, right? Hour is figurative for a period of time. He doesn't tell you how long that period of time is. He just says we're in it. That's all he says. He, he's, John is not even trying to tell you when you know that hour is up. He just wants you to know you're in this hour. He, he's not concerned with how much is left of it. He's concerned with what's in it. How do you know you're in it? What's going on in this last? The content of the last hour is what he's concerned about. Uh, we can think of, uh, a lot of Christians, I think, think of the last times, the last days as a countdown. And they're looking at clouds, they're looking at newspapers, they're looking at politicians to see how much time is left. And I think that's the wrong way to view it. I think the way to view it is a count up, not a countdown. And it counts up and up and up till when? Till when God says stop, that's when, right? It's one of the key differences between the NFL and the MLB, right? In football, the clock is counting down and you're racing the clock. And when the clock is over, the game is over. The, whoever scored the most points by that point, that's it. It's over. Baseball doesn't work that way. In fact, many people, one of the things they don't like about baseball is how interminable the games can be sometimes. 19 innings, 20 innings, 21. How can you have infinite innings? Yeah, no one has scored yet. Or it's tied 3-3 in the 20th inning, right? It just keeps going. Now, the fact that baseball matches John's theology better than football. That's not my fault. That's God's ordination. That's how God arranged these things. But rather than thinking of these things as a, as a clock counting down, 
Think of it as a clock counting up. We're in this last period of time. It's the home stretch. It's the last leg of the race. How long is this last stretch? Nobody knows. 2,000 years, 3,000 years. The Bible is not wrong because we feel like it's enough time now, God. It must not be correct now. No, you're, you're in the last stretch. How long is the stretch? Nobody knows how long the stretch is. But the Bible tells you what the stretch looks like. The Bible gives you what you need to make it on that home stretch, that last leg of the race. If you're going to make it to the finish line, you need to understand what this last leg of the race looks like. And it's going to look like that for thousands of years. That's fine. But it's, it looks different than it looked prior to Christ's coming. So Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension has ushered us into this last leg of the race of the story of humanity uh, before Christ returns finally. So he warns us, he wants us to know we're in this last leg, this last hour. And the way we know it is the sign of the Antichrist. Uh, uh, not that he's here, but that he's coming. And right when you want to start thinking about, well, when is he coming? How do we know he's coming? He switches gears, doesn't he? And he moves from an Antichrist to the many Antichrists that you really ought to be paying attention to. What you really need to be paying attention to is not the one ultimate Antichrist that's coming, since no one can figure out, we'll know when it, when it happens. What you need to be paying attention to are the many Antichrists that perennially pop up and uh, affect Christians in churches. And so you see the word therefore there. So now many antichrists have come, therefore we know that it's the last hour. You know it's the last hour because antichrists are present. They're, they're already here. And it's a danger. Uh, the word anti comes right from the Greek. If you look it up in the Greek, anti. It's antichrist. And it can mean one of two things. One, it can mean instead of someone who puts themselves in the place of Christ. So this is why many say if there is an ultimate antichrist that comes, he's going to rise up and say, I am Christ, or he's going to take the throne and rule the world, sort of usurping Christ. And anyone who claims that he's not Christ and actually Jesus is Christ, he's going to try to wipe them out. Um, that's one way to take anti, and I think that's true. If there is a consummate person, that's that's what they're going to do. But anti also means against. And that's how we typically use the word, right? This person is anti-Christianity. This person is anti-gun. They have anti-gun policies. They're, just, they're not trying to replace guns with something. It means that they're against uh, uh, guns kind of thing. So, uh, and I think with the many antichrists, that second one is uh, the best way to understand what they're doing. They, they are against Christ's actual agenda, even though they claim to have Christ's agenda. They're against him, and they're antagonistic to the real Jesus that we know. So our job isn't to try to figure out who the end-time figure is. Our job, rather, is to identify what the Antichrist look like, keep our nose in the Bible, look around us and identify the people that are around us that are anti-Christ. What I want to do is drop down to 22. We'll come back up to these verses, but look down at verse 22 really quickly because he's going to describe who the Antichrist looked like. John kind of talks in circles. He kind of goes here, then he comes back, then he goes, he moves on, then he comes back to a previous point. And it's, sometimes it's kind of hard to preach that way because then I'll be going in circles. 
So he comes back to it in verse 22. Uh, this is what the Antichrist is, right? This is what an Antichrist is. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? The Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. So who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? And he says, this is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. That's not an end time figure. That's your next door neighbor who denies Jesus is God. Antichrist, right? The, the person who lies about who Christ is denies the Son. And when you deny the Son, you deny the Father. You can't have, you know, one and not the other. Verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So what he wants to make clear is this is not like you've got Christians or God followers, God fearers, uh, good godly people. And within the godly people, you have subsets. And one of those subsets are people that think Jesus is the Christ. But you've got other subsets. Uh, and some of you are like, yeah, that's, that's pretty basic. Is it? Uh, a huge debate started uh, uh, coming on the, on the evangelical Christian, Christian scene a couple years ago. And, and here's the debate, okay? Uh, do Muslims and Christians worship the same God? Now, some of you might be like, well, well no. Well, apparently, that's not obvious to everyone. There, there are Christians out there saying Muslims are, in some sense, our brothers and sisters because we all worship the same God. We just disagree about who Jesus is. What does John say happens? If you disagree about who Jesus is, what happens? You deny the Father. Allah is not the Father because Allah is not Trinity. Allah is not, has nothing to do with Jesus. So how can, how can Muslims worship the same God that Christians worship? They can't. It's impossible. And it's not because we're trying to be sticks in the mud. It's because we do our Muslim neighbors no favors by acquiescing to the lie and telling them, no, we're good. We're, we're good as long as we worship the same God in the end. Everything's all good. I mean, that's so anti-biblical. And so I think even in recent years, anti-Christ have risen up in the church promoting this stuff. And then we look like bigots. We look like, you know, our heads are buried in the sand. We look like we just don't love anybody. No, you don't love them if you're telling them that worshiping Allah is a legitimate path. And so what he makes very clear here is that to deny the son uh, and what we know to be true about the Son is to deny the Father. And so when we look at these passages, it's very clear that there's some uh, pointed doctrine at stake. The things that we believe, it's not enough to just get together and have worship services, but to understand what we are saying. When we say we are Christian, we follow Christ. What Christ? Some made-up Christ? No, the Christ that has been revealed. And if we deny what, who Christ is, who Jesus is, then we've lost the entire thing, and we are at enmity with the Father. So this, there, there can't be a more important thing uh, to cover. And this is one among many reasons why I didn't take a time out and do a three-part series on the COVID virus. I mean, I get it. And this stuff is difficult. And we want to talk about it, 
the reason why the announcements have been longer the past couple Sundays is because I'm addressing it. But I, I want to continue with First John because this is the stuff. COVID viruses come and go. Politicians come and go. World rulers come and go. Earthquakes, wars, they come and go. All right, what, what lasts in the end? Well, those who made the final leg of the race by not being deceived. So the last hour is marked by Antichrist who lie about Christ. We see that in verses 22 to 23. And I'll just make this note as well. Uh, Christians debate. Some of you know uh, some of the things I've written and what I'm studying and whatnot. What I teach at Trinity about proclaiming Christ in all of our sermons. Proclaiming Christ in all of our teaching. Proclaiming Christ from the Bible every chance you get. And a lot of Christians are like, well, no, what? you don't always have to proclaim Christ as long as you just proclaim the Father. Well, to proclaim Christ is to proclaim the Father. You know, we make it like if, if we only talk about Jesus and we don't talk about the Father, the Father kind of feels dissed. No, he feels dissed if you don't bring up Jesus. Because to deny one is to deny the other, and to proclaim one is to proclaim the other. And so we want to keep Christology front and center. Uh, we want to have church services. We want to hear sermons where someone can come and be okay with God, but not okay with Christ. And as a result of coming to a, one of our services, realize they're not okay with our church. Because we're not gonna talk about God in general terms. A come one, come all, one size fits all God. We worship a very specific God who has uh, pointed us to the truth in his son, Jesus Christ. And so we keep Christ central in our teaching and our worship and in everything that we do. Um, you'll notice in this text, it doesn't say anything about their character. Uh, these, these deceivers, these liars, it doesn't say they're seething, they have long uh, you know, fangs, they, they have pointy ears, they, um, you know, they're bullies. Uh, no, they're nice people. How many times have you heard people tell you uh, that you know, Mormon, Mormons are the nicest people they've ever met? That's great. Doesn't say anything about them identifying them by how mean they are. They can be the best neighbors you've ever had. They've got Christ wrong. And so these are things that are, are difficult. And what's really sobering is that the antichrists that John identifies in this passage don't come from without the church. They come from within the church. He's not talking about seminary university professors. He's not talking about people that write for the New York Times. He's not talking about your boss at work. He's talking about when you sit and gather in a church, people in the pew, people in the seats next to you, they come from within the church in this context, antichrist that are in the church. And so you see that in verses 19 uh, to 20. Let's look at that. He says, they went out from us but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out. So you see, again, the circular, uh, it's for emphasis. They went out, but it might be claimed that they uh, all are not of us. And so when we see verse 19 to 21 there, we realize that they, these antichrists that John is warning his little children about, his uh his audience, his readers, 
they are reeling from the fact that these deceivers and liars and false teachers were once their Sunday school teachers, their worship leaders, their small group leaders, maybe preachers. I mean, these are pre weren't people that just sat in the back. These, these people are actively communicating things about God and about Jesus Christ. And they got to the point where they started communicating wrong things, and then they left. And of course, the church is despondent. Of course, that breaks people's hearts. No good church loves to see people leave, especially over a doctrinal thing. I mean, obviously, if somebody has to move or there's a job change, I mean, people leave churches for good reasons. But this is something where uh, these are people they trusted. These are people they looked up to and then left. And John is trying to explain to them that the reason why they left is because they never actually were a part of you. Now, you can imagine their response being, uh, well, yeah, they were. They showed up at every meeting. They ran some of the meetings. They, uh, they uh, led some of the ministry teams. Uh, a lot of what I learned about the Bible came from some of these teachers. And he's like, I know, but they weren't really of you, though. Right? Being in a church building, being on a ministry team, being on a membership role doesn't make you one of us. Well, how, well wow, how, how do you know then? How can you really tell? Well, there's a couple ways you can tell. One is do they deny Christ? And two, will they stay? When you're clear about who Christ actually is, do they stick around? Or do they hightail it out of there once they realize their doctrine is not being accepted? Their weird stuff about uh, their cheap way of explaining the Trinity that's been called heresy for hundreds and hundreds of years, when they realize the church isn't going to play ball, they leave. They don't stay. They're going to go find people that listen to the nonsense that they're spewing. Why would they stay in a church? They have a false gospel to peddle, and no one's buying. No one's buying. They're going to move on somewhere else to sell that stuff. And so that's how you know they don't stick around. There's a, there's a, uh, there's a doctrinal test to uh, Christianity. And so when we have our membership classes, for instance, um, man, it's really tempting to just barrel through the doctrinal stuff and talk about other things. But we try to take one whole session and move through the doctrinal statement. Do you believe this stuff? As, as far as you understand it now, do you believe this stuff? We're not asking people, can you write a book on this particular doctrine? You know, could, could you stand up in uh, a seminary and teach an entire class, a master's level class on each of these? No, we're just saying when we say who Jesus is, that he's the son of God, that he's fully man and fully God at the same time. And that even though we don't exactly know how that all works together, we claim both of those things at the same time because the Bible does. Do you get that? And if someone's like, no, I don't get that. He couldn't have been a man. He couldn't have been just a human. That doesn't make any sense. Maybe he looked like a human, but really wasn't human. Uh, yeah, that's, that's not what the Bible says. Therefore, it's heresy. Right? Or he was human, but a really good human. He was human, he was a really good teacher. And yeah, he worked miracles because the power of God was on him, but not, not that he's God. Well, that's not what the Bible affirms. That's heresy. And so it's not being nitpicky. It's not just being kind of a Bible geek. It's, it's 
the one of the ways we affirm that somebody is a part of the fellowship, the true fellowship of God, and just showing up on Sundays is not proof of really much of much at all, right? And that doesn't prove much of anything to just be physically present with people or on a Zoom call, but rather what we proclaim, what we uh, hold as true about our Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, and sometimes it just takes a while uh, for someone's life to pan out. This is why you don't want to just baptize your children when they are old enough to parrot back to you some verses you told them to memorize. Do they really get who Jesus is? Why he had to be fully flesh to die an actual human death? Because we should die that death. I mean, does, it, does a, a six-year-old understand that? Okay. So these are the things that if we're going to teach our children, we need to make sure that we're not teaching our children all it takes to be a part of the true fellowship of God is get up in the morning, brush your teeth, put on nicer clothes than you would normally wear, and show up at church. But there's a confession, a doctrinal confession uh, that is a part of the entire thing. And so these antichrists don't stick around. These antichrists leave, and their leaving is for a reason. What is the reason that John tells us? Uh, what, what is the reason for their leaving? The reason for their leaving is so that we can see they weren't really in. And so as discouraging as it was, as heartbreaking as it can be, when people leave because they're embracing and trying to peddle false doctrine, there's at least a relief that, man, you know what? When Jesus said, nothing is really going to remain hidden, everything comes to light. That's, that's something we can bank on. God kind of weeds it out, even if we don't, if, if we miss something. God has a way of arranging things so that it kind of works itself out. And people that love darkness can't just stick around in a church of light. And so they leave so that it could be shown, so that it be made, so that it can be made plain and obvious to everyone how they never really were a part of us. And so uh, the way that God does that and preserves his people is by anointing them. If you look in verses 20 to 21, he says, but you, you're still here. Why are you still here? Because you're so smart? Well, no, it's not, it's not intelligence. Some of these false teachers are really, really brilliant, right? But the reason why they left and you've stuck around is not a level of intelligence or level of education, but rather you've been anointed by the Holy One. God has done something in you that he hasn't done in them. See that? So he's not saying the reason why you're still here is because of your stick-to-itness, your, 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 uh, your true grit, right? Uh, well, no, the reason why Christians can stick it out and not listen to false doctrine is because they know the voice of their shepherd. The reason why they know the voice of their shepherd is because the Holy One, who's God himself, has done a work in you. He's done something to you that isn't about you. He's anointed you. Okay. Many, many uh, 
interpreters believe that what he means there is the Holy Spirit. I think that makes sense. He doesn't say Holy Spirit, but it makes sense, all right? When you when you when you're converted, you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. You're baptized by the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit in Scripture is is connected with anointing language. Um, but at any rate, God does a work in you. Those of you who are believers, God does a work in you so that you are preserved by that work. And it's his anointing. What does that anointing look like? You've been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. But the anointing, the way you know you have the anointing is not because you have special dreams. It's not because uh, an angel comes through your window at night, right? Wow, he really has the anointing. And I, and I think we misuse anointing sometimes. But we say, wow, that, that sister really has the anointing. Wow, pastor was really anointed today. Okay, I'm really glad you enjoyed the sermon, but I was anointed yesterday too. It's not an anointing that comes and goes. Sometimes you're anointed. Sometimes he's writing everyone that reads this letter that's a true fellowship in the true fellowship of God. You've been anointed. Pastor Lucas is not more anointed than you are. If you're a believer, you're as anointed as I am. And in fact, you don't need me to have that anointing. You don't. You don't need some kind of special priest or special prophet that has special access to God, right? to give you his interpretation of his special dreams the night before. Special secret knowledge that you couldn't have gotten without this guru. He's going, that's one of the ways you know they're false teachers. They claim to have something that you don't have access to. And that's false. Okay? If you've ever listened to any of these sermons and you, you're listening to what I'm saying, and you look down at the Bible verse and you're like, I could have seen that myself. That's the biggest compliment you can give me. The biggest compliment you could give me is, yeah, if I just read it myself, I would have come up with that. The worst thing you could tell me is, I was looking at the text, I have no idea. It must be all the degrees you have, Pastor, to come up with that one. That's the worst thing you could tell me, because then I'm not doing my job. You should be able to see what I'm saying from the text. You don't need special degrees, right? Uh, if someone comes to you and says, here's this new thing. CFC hasn't told you this one, huh? They've been hiding this from you, haven't they? I bet your leadership doesn't know about this thing. You, have, you haven't discovered this yet. Uh, you're, you're sniffing. What you're sniffing in the air right there is heresy. Because the secret knowledge stuff is diabolical. It's antichrist. The spirit of the antichrist is to, to try to get you to think that what you've been taught about Jesus Christ isn't really all that true. Isn't that what Satan did in the beginning? Did God really say... And then Satan doesn't outright lie. He just puts a spin on the truth, doesn't he? And so this is how antichrists pop up. This is what they look like. That's how they talk. That's their strategy, what they try to do. And John is trying to encourage you. You, you don't need special knowledge. You have the knowledge that you need. Uh, he's not saying in this text, you already know everything and there's no need for teaching. And we'll get back to that in a second. But what he's saying is you have a basic knowledge about who Jesus is that God revealed to you himself. Something clicked in your mind and heart about Jesus Christ that didn't click for maybe your, your spouse, your neighbor, your friend, your parents, and it breaks your heart. And you're like, how come I see it and they don't see it? Well, you have an anointing that they don't have. Okay, that doesn't mean it's, it's not someone's fault when they reject the gospel. It just means the fact that you embrace the gospel 
shows that there's something going on inside of you and you don't need someone to change what you already understand about Jesus Christ, that he is the son of God, that he is the promised Messiah. And so the Antichrist leave, but God preserves his anointed so that they don't leave, so that they stay, they finish that race. They're in the last hour and they keep pushing and striving and they stay the course in that last leg of the race or in that really, really, really long extra inning. They keep at it. They keep going up to bat and they keep grinding it out, not because they're special, but because what they have is special, which is God's anointing, this knowledge of Jesus Christ that God has blessed you with. And so we don't want to be church, a church that's soft on Christology or soft on what we mean when we say Jesus Christ. Uh, because if we were a church that was soft on what we mean by Jesus Christ, we would never be able to tell if Antichrist were among us. Why? Because they would never leave. And they would never leave because we never, we never pushed on who Jesus said he is. But the passage is an encouragement. It's an encouragement not to just sit back and go, oh, I have this special anointing. I have this knowledge of, of who Jesus is. I guess I can just relax. No, he wants you to re remain. He wants you to abide. He wants you to make sure that you don't let anyone dissuade you from what you already know about Christ. Look at verses 24 to 27. From 24 to 27, he makes it clear that uh, you've heard something in the, in the beginning and you want to take that content of what you heard and stay in it, remain in it, abide in it, allow it to uh, dwell in you or rather you dwell in it. So he says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the son and in the father. So think about this for a second. The fact that he's saying, you heard something from the beginning. What do they hear from the beginning of their walks with Christ? What have they been hearing? Well, the gospel, the proclamation of truth. So when he says you've been anointed, there is something inside going on, this, this knowledge of who Jesus is, but it's not just an inward knowledge. There's content, actual teaching being transferred. There's propositions, truths that you're holding to. And so there's a strain of Christians that would say, I don't want to know stuff. It's not about knowledge. I just want a relationship with Jesus. Well, who's Jesus? What does a relationship mean? What does it take to have a relationship? Can you stay in the relationship? What, what allows someone to stay within the relationship? However, the person answers that, that's doctrine. And so there is content. And what John does not mean he does not mean that teaching has no place in the Christian church. That would be, that would be antichrist because Jesus said, here's how you're going to make disciples, teaching them. Matthew 28, 19, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. So discipleship takes teaching, right? Paul told uh, the Ephesians in chapter four that Jesus Christ has given gifts to the church. And one of those gifts that he's given to the church are teachers. Actually, all those gifts that Jesus gives to the church in Ephesians four have a teaching function. There are apostles, pastors, teachers, evangelists. They proclaim content. John wouldn't even be writing this letter if content wasn't necessary, right? He's not saying, I'm not going to write them a letter. They have all the knowledge they need. <laughs> I mean, what he's trying to do is teach you 
in a way that confirms what you already know, rather than teaching you something new that contradicts what you already knew. That's the difference between what John is doing and what the Antichrists are doing in that church. And he says, whoever confesses the Son as the Father, and how do you know that? Go back to what you knew from the beginning, that original gospel that was given to you, and allow that to abide in you. If you've heard from the beginning, what you've heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father, that remaining power of staying in, that perseverance of the Christian faith is sticking to the truth, staying in it, and it'll stay in you. And so you see this interplay between what God does in your life. He gives you this anointing, but there's also this expectation that you lean into it and remain in it. The, the two work together. How do they work together? I don't know. But the Bible is clear on both so that if you lose the race, you can't blame it on God. But if you win the race, you can't take the credit. If you lose the race, you can't say, well, God, God didn't give me what I needed. But if you win the race, none of us are going to go, see, I did it. No, we're going to cast our crowns before the Lord because he did it. Uh, that's what the Bible makes clear. On the one hand, resting in the fact that God has done a work. He's given you what you need. He gives you an anointing that is crucial and special. You have the knowledge you need. At the same time, you need to press into it, remain in it, and allow it to remain in you. Look at how he closes this paragraph. He kind of does a recap at the end, and he says, I write these things to you, verse 26 to 27, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. Again, you don't have anyone, you don't need anyone to teach you the beginning, the basics, or reshape it for you. But his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. You see both of those things happening there, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Something has happened to you, you're doing something about it. God speaks first, you continue to go. God gets you in the race, you continue to run it. He's the one that finishes it in you, but you have to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's those two things happening at the same time so that uh, a, a, an understanding of God's sovereignty, and he uses the word promise. If you see that in verse, uh, oh, where, where was the promises verse? Uh, verse 25, and this is the promise that he made to us, not the bargain. So he's not saying if you remain in God, then the bargain, the deal is that, boom, he'll give you eternal life. No, it's the promise. The promise is eternal life. And that promise from the beginning has always been by faith, right? Abraham's righteousness was credited to him because he believed the promise by faith, not because he did so many things. So there's the promise, what has been taught to us, what we've been given, this anointing, we've, been, we've received it. Our response is then to act and to remain. And as we act and we re remain in his teaching, we have to be vigilant about what we believe, to not get sloppy about who we say Jesus Christ is. This means that when uh, people want to talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, all the ins and outs, when someone tells you, you know what, the clover analogy is just not a good analogy, to not roll your eyes, Ugh, 
here's a stick in the mud Christian again. Careful. What does the Bible say about Jesus Christ? Let's stick to that. Well, I don't know what the Bible says about Jesus Christ. I don't ever read it. That's a problem. That's a problem. Part of what we want to do in the parents call today is talk about getting around scripture with your kids and helping them understand what the Bible says and that it's clear and that doctrine is not for seminarians. Doctrine is for believers. Doctrine is for people who are in the true fellowship of Jesus Christ. We don't want to roll our eyes at doctrine. We won't want, don't want to disregard it. And that doesn't mean every small point of doctrine is as important as everything else. But it does mean that what God reveals as true about his son, Jesus Christ, we need to be careful to guard that and to protect it, to make sure that we're not confused on those things. Um, I don't know if it's happened yet to any of you. It will happen. Someone will come to you with some dream, some vision, some newspaper article, some ancient text that they claim to have found somewhere. Uh, and try to upend all the basic stuff that you already know about Jesus Christ. And this passage is calling us to not listen to that, to stick to the truth and make sure that we're doing our job as disciples, worshipers, brothers and sisters with each other. And of course, those of us who are parents in the home to our children, make sure that we are being responsible with what the Bible says so that in this last hour, we don't grow discouraged. We don't laugh when people fall away because they've bought into false doctrine. It's not fun and it's not funny, but it is reality. And we shouldn't be surprised by it. We shouldn't be shocked by it. We should be ready for it by pressing into the basic truth that we already know about Jesus Christ. Um, ben, I'm gonna ask you to close us in a song and then I'll close us out in prayer.